Hey, it's Ed. Before we get started, I want to thank three brand new podcast supporters, Tom Cole, FM Weld, and Matt McNally. These three guys signed up to be monthly supporters of the podcast through Patreon, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. It really means a lot. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can go to mountainandpray.com slash support and check out all the options. Thanks a lot. Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Jess Womack. Jess wears many hats, but at his core, he's a rancher. He's the fifth generation to operate his family's ranch near Victoria, Texas, a large-scale cattle operation that uses progressive land management techniques in a very unique landscape. Jess also works closely with Texas Christian University's Institute of Ranch Management, traveling far and wide to teach sustainable agricultural techniques to ranchers and farmers around the world. And on top of all that, he's also a co-founder of Explore Ranches, alongside past podcast guests Jay Clayberg and Allison Ryan. Responsible land stewardship is in Jess's DNA and is the foundation of all of his professional ventures. And as you'll hear, he's an open-minded, independent, and critical thinker who's able to speak eloquently on a wide array of sometimes controversial issues surrounding agriculture. When you combine those traits with his rock-solid work ethic and focus, you'll understand why he's been able to establish himself as such a leader in agriculture, both in Texas and abroad. Whether you're deeply involved in agriculture or you've never even set foot on a ranch, you'll gain a great deal of value from Jess's perspective. His knowledge, passion, and worldly mindset are applicable for almost any type of endeavor. Jess and I went to high school together, and even after knowing him for more than 25 years, I still learned a lot from this conversation. We talk about his work with TCU, and he shares some success stories from his time teaching in Panama, Ghana, Nigeria, and Brazil. He explains the importance of community buy-in and how focusing on commonalities and shared goals can help overcome cultural divides. We talk about his family's history in Texas and how he's raising his two sons to love and respect the outdoors. Jess also gives a few updates on Explore Ranches and talks about some of the exciting events that they'll be hosting soon. We also chat about his involvement with the Texas Agricultural Land Trust and how conservation easements can be a useful tool for ranchers in Texas and beyond. As usual, we discuss favorite books, movies, and Jess shares the best piece of advice he's ever received, which I especially appreciated. The podcast begins with Jess sharing a funny story about his son right before we started the actual interview. His sense of humor and love of fatherhood really shine through in that story, so I decided to leave that in before we actually get to the normal standard opening questions. I think you'll enjoy it and get a kick out of it. So here you go, Jess Womack. You know, when you think we were in high school, we first met, I think we were still listening to tapes. And now we're... Yes. (laughs) Yes, we were. Which I still cling on to a little bit, by the way. I have my old tape 
little deck, like a two-thing tape deck in my garage. And when my son and I do some work out there, I, I have I put tapes in. So he he's like one of the only nine-year-olds that knows what a a, a tape is in the entire um, world. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. And then he's uh, he's gotten into this trot lining thing and uh, um, loves it. And so we bought all the gear or bought all the materials for it. I showed him how to make a trot line. And uh, for out at the ranch, we've been catfishing the past few weekends. And um, I come home last week. Yeah. To my backyard, there are, I don't know, half a dozen trot lines strung all the way across the backyard. And, and he's got two of his buddies helping him tie hooks and leaders and everything onto these trot lines. And uh, he had brought out the tape player and they were listening to Waylon Jennings' greatest hits tape. And uh, I said, well, I mean, my purpose on earth is, is done now. I'm, I'm, I'm finished. It's, I'm good. You won. You won. You are the best father in history. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. That's oh, great. Man. To to try to make it sound somewhat like we know what we're talking about. The uh sure. the way that I normally start these interviews is I ask people when you meet somebody for the first time and they ask you that question that can be somewhat annoying, but they say <clears throat> what do you do? How do you answer mm-hmm. that? Yes, I've heard that several times. Uh you know, I've heard at least a couple of your guests uh, kind of chuckle at that question because they're not really sure uh, how to answer that. And so, uh, I, uh, I'm kind of the same way, uh, to most people. I say that, uh, I ranch, um, and, uh, you know, do some stuff, uh, and, uh, help my family out some uh, other business stuff. But, uh, yeah, I ranch and, uh, I teach, uh, also and do some international, um, seminars on natural resource management with, uh, the institute uh, the tcu institute of ranch management that's a very um a very humble way of explaining what you do because you got a lot of stuff going on <laughs> a lot of stuff going. <laughs> i don't know how you do it but i think i was trying to think of how we dive into this i think maybe the best way to do it is just talking about tcu and your role sure. there because i feel like kind of everything you do touches land and land management and i want to talk about all the different facets of that, but maybe let's talk about TCU first. Can you just talk a little bit about that program and exactly what you do there? Sure. Um, TCU's in uh, Fort Worth. Uh, it's Texas Christian University. Uh, at that university, um, they have a branch management uh, program. It's a two-semester certificate program. Uh, it's been going since the f- 1956. Um and what it teaches is it, it, ranch management is kind of a misnomer. Um, it's uh, really about the business of ranching. And if you really want to get particular, what we teach is it's a business-based approach to sustainable natural resource management. Mm-hmm. And that's a mouthful, but that's what we do. And uh, the mythology methodology is that uh, they can take a graduate, we can take a graduate from that program, place them anywhere in the world, and they will analyze the natural resources available to them and find out the most uh, economical and sustainable way to manage those resources, starting with the soil. Uh, we like to say, you know, you cannot be sustainable, uh, first of all, if you are not economically sustainable in your operation. Yeah. Um, and so, you know... Uh, and then years ago, they started uh, uh, an institute uh, was uh, founded, and 
been, let's see, it's probably, yeah, 10, 10 years ago, uh, a little over 10 years ago, I was in Brazil uh, for the summer. I was uh, in between my master's, uh, two years of master's program at, at uh, Boston University, mm-hmm. um, and I went down to work for uh, John Carter. Um, and what I was interested in is so getting a master's in really environmental policy and I really kind of focused in trade policy and I focused down on uh, how environmental and trade policy could affect uh, sustainable uh, agriculture especially Mm -hmm. in Brazil Um, and so I was working for him and I during that summer I realized that the need for not only uh, more managers in Brazil and in agriculture in general but also how we could really direct the institute. Uh, and at that time, one of my professors from the program uh, was is in charge of the institute, Jeff Guider. Yep. And I emailed him, or maybe even used uh, Skype. Um, and this was in 08. And I said, you need to get down here because I think – uh, I think we we have a path forward for the institute because um, the institute had just been doing kind of uh, exploratory and but uh, in good trips uh, and taking alumni and graduates uh, down you know around various parts of the world on on week long two week long trips and I said I think we can do something with this and so uh, he came down with uh, also with uh, our dean and we toured around uh, Mato Grosso um, and decided that. We wanted the institute to go forward teaching the methodology of the program and teach it internationally mm-hmm. uh, and apply those same principles. So that's what we do. And uh, we have had projects and have projects in um, Panama, um, had projects in Brazil, uh, worked a little in Ghana, um, currently working with a group from Central uh, Nigeria, Kaduna State University in Nigeria. Uh, we are talking to some folks in Kazakhstan right now. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, had some interest from uh, Vicente Fox. He has a foundation or an institute, I mean, uh, in Mexico. Um, he was president of Mexico a few presidents ago, if you remember yeah, him. Yeah, I do. Um, Very good looking man, I must say. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> For sure. I haven't met him yet, but he's friends with uh, the provost uh, in, at TCU. And Anyway, so we had some interest in various parts. And, and right now, our main uh, – oh, and we've done some work in Scotland the past few years, too, with the Royal Highland Show. We've put on – you know, spoken there a couple of times, and we're working with the James Hutton Institute in Scotland. Um, I'm trying to get, get a program going with them also in the, in the Scottish Rural Leadership Program. Uh, our most active programs right now is, our, is in Panama, mm-hmm. and uh, we have taught seminars to the National Cattle Raisers Association down there, um, and we teach a course every summer, two-week course, at the University of Panama, their ag campus in a little city called David, um, and now we're working with the their Department of Agriculture to start up a program at their National Institute of Agriculture um, outside of a little town called Chitra uh, to train their version of uh, 
NRCS agents and uh, support technicians for uh, producers. That's just and, – and the thing is, that's just a fraction of what you do. Like, that's – Yeah. <laughs> uh, so so – for, just for my knowledge, I mean, when you when you name off all these different landscapes all over the world, I don't I don't know the details, but I would imagine that you know when you hear Scotland and you hear Panama and you hear you know just places all over Europe, Asia, Africa, I would imagine the landscapes are extremely different. The rainfall is extremely different. So, do you guys do you have like a model that you've developed at TCU, and then you show up in these places and you can plug in a bunch of different variables and then it tells you kind of how to move forward or is, does it require getting on the ground and kind of building a model from, from scratch? I mean, how do you get your head around these extremely variable landscapes to be able to, you know, advise on, on being as profitable as possible? Yes. And, uh, yeah, and it's, it's very interesting. It, 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 every single one of them are very different. Uh, as you well know, um, landscapes, ranching challenges, various things are, uh, vastly different in a lot of ways across, uh, Texas, let alone the United States yeah, and, yeah. And, and the world. Um, well, we take the methodology taught by the program and, but we're, we tailor it to whatever group's needs that, uh, we're talking with and we talk before usually before we visit we'll have an initial visit and we just really our, our biggest and first question always is what do you all need or want from us mm-hmm. um and the answer depends is is different for different groups um i mean we taught last summer uh two summers ago we taught a course to small dairy farmers in Panama through the United Nations, the FAO, Food and Agri- uh, Agriculture Organization. And that's what we asked them when we first got in, up in front of this group. And we said, you know, yes, we are mainly ranchers, but really and truly, um, we want and we teach and we want to teach you all and help you all. Hey, you know, producing a pound of, of beef has a cost. Um, and so really it makes very little difference whether that's a pound of milk or a pound of beef. Um, a lot of the same management, uh, issues and challenges. And, uh, so we, we taught dairy producers, um, for for about a week, uh, which was really interesting to me because I worked for a dairy, uh, in college, uh, to get outside, I needed to go get outside or I was going to go crazy. So, uh, I worked for a guy four years out there and, uh, it makes me really, really grateful that my family's in cattle ranching. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a 365-day-a-year, twice-a-day job, and they don't take a break. So I, my hat goes off to dairy farmers. Oh, yeah. Holy cow. <laughs> well, so when you think about all these places you've been, I mean, you mentioned Panama, and that seems like – that is a, a huge success story. But like either within Panama or in any of these other countries where you've operated, is there um, like a kind of a story that comes to mind or like a case study that was a that you just think of as a real success? Like you showed up and were able to spread some knowledge that they may, may not have had before that had some pretty tangible effects um, on their their operations and their ability to be profitable. Definitely. And much like in the United States, uh, anywhere, um, one of the biggest challenges uh, facing producers is keeping records. Because if you don't know how much something costs you to produce it, you don't know if you're making or losing money yep. when you sell it. Um, 
And that's, I mean, that's this way. Like I said, here in the United States, Texas, everywhere, uh, I'd say most producers do not keep those records either by choice because they don't need to or care to or don't have the time. They have other jobs or, you know, they just uh, they do things in a traditional way and and, and whatever. Um, But we have had people around the world uh come up to us when we return or come back and say you know we, we uh they're very proud they want to show us their record keeping books and you know inputs and you know they uh they're, and they're really happy with that and said it's uh it has helped um their operation in one way or another and so that's been that's been very satisfying um and that class at the university of panama is very very uh rewarding too to watch these young people get into agriculture it's fascinating to me and and, and at least in latin america and that's where we've had most of our experience is pretty much every seminar we've taught across latin america 50 percent at least of the participants are female which is somewhat uncommon yeah especially in the united states you know you think of agriculture and of course there are stars in agriculture that are female just but 50 percent of our classes and it's that's really that's really been astounding, and uh, a lot of them do not come from agricultural operations. Uh, we have had uh, one student from that class come up to TCU and go through the year-long program at TCU, the Ranch Management Program, and he is now back uh, at the National Institute in Panama, and he is uh, helping to kind of revitalize that area. It's, it's about it's several thousand acres, and it's a beautiful uh, piece of land with uh, just great infrastructure. It just, uh, it, it's been ignored uh, for a while, and they're revamping and putting money into it. So it's it's really an exciting, uh, exciting project. So my wife, who you know, um, mm-hmm. used to work in the international development world and would, you know, go to different countries, mostly developing countries, and, and try to help with different challenges that were going on but one of the biggest challenges she had was that you 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 want you have to have community buy-in for what you're doing it can't Mm -hmm. be you know the the office full of white folks show up with (laughs) you know with all these just answers thinking that they're so smart i mean it has to be um you know it has to be this this legit community buy-in and i even see that in my world of land conservation i mean i i'm in colorado springs and i go down to a rural area and there has to be buying from that rural community. It can't just be me sitting in an office coming in with all these great ideas. So how do you balance that? Because, I mean, you are bringing great ideas, but at the same time, it has to – you have to have that, that buy-in. So so how do you walk that fine line? Because I would imagine that's probably even more challenging than some of the technical agricultural practices you're putting into play. Most definitely. Most definitely. Um one, we we start out with somewhat an advantage because uh, ranch management around the world has has alumni and a good reputation, and they know that we're producers. Yep. Uh, they know that we are we are actively involved and currently involved in the industry itself, um, which you know gives us uh, uh, well a step up or you know in, in legitimacy. Um, so right there. And also, uh, Jeff and I are very, very careful when we get to start working with a new group or get to a new place where, yes, I mean, uh, in the NGO world and especially in environmental and agriculture conflicts in some of these places, uh, you know, we do not want to appear as, you know, the American that's wagging 
our fingers at them, telling them, you know, what to do and what not to do. Yeah. Um, and that's why we definitely start off all of our relationships is what, what would you like us to do when we don't have all the answers and we point out all the mistakes of, or a lot of the mistakes of the cattle industry, what has happened in the, in the United States and, and trends and, and ranching. And, you know, we make mistakes every day because we actively ranch. And, um, so we, we're, we're quick to point that out and mm-hmm. that gives us a lot of buy-in and it's, it doesn't work with all groups. Uh, I mean, you know, Brazil, it, it, it's been, it has, and it was a challenge more so there just because Brazil gets picked on a lot and ranchers in Brazil get picked on a lot. We have this vision uh, in mainstream type media that, you know, cattle ranching and ranchers are just going around with Caterpillar D9s and mowing down the rainforest, yeah. um, which is simply not the case. Um you know, ranchers in uh, Amazon proper in Brazil are required to keep 75% of their ranch fenced out in in, in forest reserve. Mm. Uh, not to mention the areas, depending on the state, how wide, but all riparian areas. They have to fence out all riparian areas, which, you know, uh, uh, as you well know, if you walked up to a rancher in the United States <laughs> as a government employee and said, you're going to fence out three quarters of your ranch and not produce off of it. Um, <laughs> you know, we'd have a revolution on our hands. Oh yeah. Uh, not all of those ranches are legally uh, in compliance, but the ones that I worked with and that John Carter has worked with with Alianza were either in compliance or working to get into compliance um, with that forest reserve area. But you know, we. Um, and we took uh, we've taken groups of ranchers to several different places around the world, uh, and that's been interesting, because and that's how another way we get buy-in is, you know, we're all very different in different parts of the world, but you sit around a fire or sit around a dinner table, and then all of a sudden, uh, everybody realizes that. We have many, many of the same challenges. Now, they vary in scope and they vary in, you know, the details. But, you know, is it challenges on getting, you know, uh, good and reliable labor or input costs that are increasing and machine costs that are increasing, uh, you know, marketing uh, and challenges in marketing and how to get the best price for, price for your beef and, um, and your cattle. Um, and so... We sit down and that, and when we start off a class, we will do that and list some of these challenges uh, for your particular area and for your country. And we make these lists. And the list, I, I have you know years of records, and they're always so so similar. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, they're pretty much the same every time. Um, and so that's that's another way you t- you can start to get buy-in, you know, and uh, just realizing that well, these these exist, you know, you know. It, it, a common misconception in, around the world is we say we're from Texas and they picture J.R. Ewing and we have oil just flowing out of the ground and <laughs> fat cattle and life is great. Yeah. <laughs> like, eh, we have droughts and we have government policies and regulations and we, I'm like, oh, okay. So it, life is not like Dallas, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, which is fun. Um, well, speaking of these misconceptions, this is something I've, I've wanted to ask you about for a while. But the, so the, there are all these 
very well-meaning people, I think. And I, I see this stuff on, on social media or on the Internet. And there's this endless stream of, of comments from, from people saying that cattle are terrible for the environment. And the best thing you can do to stop global warming is to stop eating beef. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think these people are trying to trick anybody. I mean, I think they believe that. But on the other side of the equation, you know, a, a great friend of mine who's been on this podcast twice is Jim Howell, who is one of the founders mm-hmm. of the Savory Institute. And their whole deal sure. is graze livestock to fight glo- global warming. And we need those grasses to sequester carbon and you know, so there are these two – and that's the side I fall on. I mean, I, and I've mm-hmm. read many a book about it, not as many as you. But so so where is the disconnect there? I don't, I don't get it because I don't want to argue with people. But when I see these memes or whatever about how bad cows are, I know it's not true. But, but what am I missing there? Well, uh, it's, it's like you name it debate right now, especially today, that it's, it's been – that. Uh, that's been oversimplified, and it's much it's a much more complicated picture. And you alluded to some of those things. I mean, well managed grasslands do indeed sequester carbon. Also, grasses that have adapted over millions of years to be grazed. If they are not grazed, then they're going to go down in population, and invasive species will eventually come up. Um, and you know, uh, cattle it also, you know it. That part of the debate is that, yes, cattle, well-managed grazing systems actually work very well with wildlife and biodiversity. Now, if people want to – I think most of the objections to eating beef centers on the fact that most of our cattle in the United States are fed in feedlots. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people or some of those folks that you were talking about don't like those. Now um, – and when you take that segment of the industry into the overall carbon footprint when you eat beef, then yes, and, and water footprint uh, and everything else, that that, that really is going to increase. But, you know, that's not necessarily – it's not the industry's fault. I mean it is in fact economical to feed cattle grain in the Midwest and in the Panhandle. Um, here in the United States, we have an abundance of it. Yep. Now – a more nuanced conversation, you, we could get down to, okay, why is it economical? Is that right? Well, it is right now. Now, are they watering corn to feed to these animals? Yes, they are, and out of uh, aquifers that may or may not recharge uh, over time. Um, but that is a, a conversation that we could have on whether or not water is priced correctly in those areas or those states or mm-hmm. wherever. Um, because right now, I mean, of course, depending on seasonalities and the markets, like I said, it, it, it makes economic sense to feed cattle. And then also if we didn't feed cattle, uh, it takes much longer and more area to grow cattle, uh, for me, just solely based on, on a grass diet. Um, but the fact is really that ruminant animals are the most efficient way we have right now of turning the sun's energy through grass into energy and protein yep. um, and manage correctly. Uh, I would strongly disagree with those people. Yeah, I think it's just the, the, the way of the world these days of trying to – people try to boil down a, 
an argument that would take multiple books to, to lay out properly. Yes. And they try to lay it out in one sentence um, so that it is cute on social media. And, you know, I, I would say that, I mean, it's just, it's complicated. That's all there is to it. But, um, well, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for talking about that. Cause I just, I well, wasn't. I get very passionate about that. And what I like to tell people if they're if they want to have a conversation uh, and, and believe me, I have absolutely zero problem with vegetarians or anyone else. It's fine with me. Yeah. But, you know, when people start talking, well, how are we going to feed this world, uh, you know, by in 2050 and, you know, population increases and, you know, uh, more consumers arrive into the middle class and some of these developing economies and they get a taste for protein. And yes, I mean, it is worrisome. But what I like to point out is just use one example, like uh, Brazil. Um they're they're improving, vastly improving uh, their genetics and their production efficiencies. But I'm going to say that that ball right now that they have somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, in the 60 percent some odd of uh, a surviving calf crop and weaned calf crop in Brazil. That and our our average in the United States is going to be between 85 and 90 percent. Oh wow! Okay. So. I point to, and in Panama, it's like 45%. In the tropics, it's just harder. You know, you have more vectors, parasites, et cetera. Um, and, uh, but so I like to point out, like, if we can, through education, better production, correct market signals, all of the above, get Brazil to go from, let's say, 60 to 85. And they have a, a, a cattle inventory of almost 200 million head of cattle. Um, then without mowing down one extra acre of rainforest, we would produce millions and millions and millions of tons of more beef with the, the land that is currently in production as we speak. Um, and that's what gets me going when we do these seminars. Like, you know, if you have a, a guy in Panama with 10 cows and he goes from having selling four calves a year to selling eight or nine calves a year, you doubled his income. And, mm-hmm. um, and also, you did it on a sustainable basis. And no more rainforest had to be mowed down to do that. Yep. Um, so my answer to those to those folks would be that's how we're going to feed the globe. We're going to we got to make this industry more efficient. Well, you know, one of the things I've always admired about you ever since you know we've known each other for for way too long. I mean, going back to the early '90s, and is you know you're from God. Texas, you're a Texan, you dress like a Texan, but you you think independently and you don't fall into any sort of formula that, like that would just be expected and you you've always been like that and it's it often leads to hilarious <laughs> for better or worse no it, yeah it's always for better as far as i'm concerned but but speaking of that so we we i remember when i was at your house a few years ago and we were back in the backyard talking trash and you were talking about how you know you go to certain events or conferences uh, around the around the country and how it frustrates you to no end that some of the conversations um, that people have at these these cattle uh, cattle industry uh, events they, they veer into social issues they don't have anything mm-hmm. to do with cattle and people all of a sudden are off track talking about gay marriage or gun rights and you know people can have their their opinions on that that's great but it doesn't have anything to do with what you're there for and it's somewhat of a dis- it is a distraction and mm-hmm. i remember you you told me you've gotten in a little bit of trouble for just telling people to to let's let's stay on the topic at hand here can you yes. just talk a little bit about that and and if it gets a little out of out of control i'm happy to uh cut out 
<laughs> but now, I mean, like, so um, what's the deal with that? I mean, how do you how do you approach that and deal with these some of these folks that that get so out of the out of the park with these weird social issues that don't have anything to do with your business? Well, um, first of all, I'd like to say I think we as an industry are doing a lot better with that. Mm-hmm. Um, conventions can be a little bit frustrating because it, it's like sometimes I feel. Uh, like it's uh, going into an echo chamber where we all agree with each other. Um, and those are not the issues that we really need to be talking about. We as an industry need to be more proactive. Uh, we're under a microscope for water usage, carbon footprints, uh, animal welfare, you know, all of these things, um, uh, you know, fertilizers and regulations and chemicals and all of these things that we're under a microscope. We are doing better at that, in my opinion. Uh, as an industry, but we need to do even better. We need, I, I prefer challenging speakers um, that, you know, at these conventions to get some conversation going. Uh, and some of, you know, agriculture, uh, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, but sometimes uh, every, people feel a little bit picked on, you know. I mean, we all hear about, you know, it takes whatever, gallons and gallons of water to produce one pistachio nut. And again, that's a larger conversation of whether or not that water is priced correctly and everything else. But, you know, uh, and then the carbon footprint of, of beef to, you know, carbon footprint of, of these larger dairies and the animal welfare uh, concerns, uh, you know, confined animal feeding operations, like all of these things. And so the natural inclination for any industry and for any person is to put up a defense, you yes. know, put, put your put your defenses up. And 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 I just really try to talk to people in the industry and say, hey, you know, uh, we don't need to put up our defenses. We need to hear these things. Like, I try to read the New York Times every Sunday, even though that's kind of difficult, you know, at times. But um, I do. And we need to talk. I mean, of course, we're never going to, you know, and we're worrying about whether we're going to convert every member of PETA to come over to our side of the debate. That's not going to happen, yeah. ever. And so we really don't need to be worried about that. Yes, we don't want to be regulated to out of business. Uh, so we need to pay attention to stuff like that, but, um, we need to be open to more conversations. I mean, I'm absolutely convinced and I might be crazy that as an example, like I, I think, uh, that, that ranchers, at least on grasslands, one of these days, I, I hope will maybe see a source of income from selling carbon credits. So I want to talk about carbon credits and carbon taxes. I want to know how that may work because – and like I say at these things and when we talk – and other people say this too. Don't get me wrong. Tons of people. Is that if we're not at that table, we're not going to even get any input as an industry on the proposed regulations or have a voice as to what exactly it is we do and how we do it. Uh, so we need to be at that table. Um, we need to be at all of those tables. Uh, even – it doesn't matter if climate change is man-made or not. I, I personally believe that it is. And 99 scientists out of 100 will tell you it is. And then the one that doesn't is trying to sell a book. But, um, you know, but we need to talk about it. And it really doesn't matter who caused it or when it was or anything or who's doing more now. Or The fact is, you know, uh, we're seeing some pretty drastic changes and we need to react so that we can manage these resources well and produce food with less inputs and less water all at the same time. So I think that's great. I mean, I think at the end of the day, 
you know, everybody's not going to agree on everything. And it seems like nowadays people just have a real problem with the idea of, well, let's just agree to disagree. Because, mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. there's, there's certain people that I'm just never going to agree with them on certain social issues. And, and they've got all of their reasons for thinking what they're thinking. And I've got all my reasons. And they're probably all good reasons given our backgrounds. And we're just not going to change. So, and that's fine. You know, as long as mm-hmm. we can just have a civil conversation, we're not, we're not enemies. Um, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot, there are things that you and I disagree on, but we both know where we're coming from and, and respect each other. And so we can, we can have those conversations. I just, the idea that that is gone or is mostly gone is, is very odd to me. Um, well, you definitely have to search harder to find uh, an audience that, yes, that would, that would act in, in that way. Um, I think they're around. And like I said, I think we're getting better uh, in a lot of ways. And, uh, <clears throat> but you're, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, you know, uh, it's just so, so much misinformation out there. I mean, you know, with, between all natural or grass fed or which is better or fed, you know, in a feed lot or, you know, if you buy it from Whole Foods or if you don't buy it from Whole Foods, like, there's a lot. I mean, you know, a grass fed ranch or, you know, grass-fed beef could be off of a ranch where somebody doesn't really know what they're doing. It could be grossly overgrazed. So I would say I'd rather have the beef from a feedlot rather than that ranch. You know, so it's, there's, you know, in most consumers, and it's not their fault, the public, they're busy trying to make a living and feed their family. They don't have time to read all of this stuff and concentrate on my industry. So we have to find a way, in our industry, we have to find a way to get that out there. Um, and, and, you know, exactly agree to disagree and put some, you know, have those discussions and, uh, talk about it and not, you know, put our defensive up and say, well, this is what we do. And by golly, this is the product that we're going to sell. And, you know, um, we don't care if people understand or not. (laughs) Um, No, I think that's well said. I'm just glad to know we got guys like you, you know, at these conferences trying to, and just representing the industry trying to have these conversations and willing, you know, you want to have these conversations. And so I think it's, I think it's awesome. So keep, keep it up. Um, I want, let's talk a little bit about your personal background because your family's got a long history there in, in Texas. And I can't remember the details, but I remember last time we were having dinner, you were telling me some story about either your great, maybe your great, great grandmother, great grandmother, somebody having to hide in a tree all night as a, <laughs> yeah. as a, the Comanche Indians were trying to capture her. So I don't fully remember the details. We were, we were probably laughing too hard for me to remember all the details, but t- tell me about your family. Well, um, my fam, my dad's side of the family, uh, were ranchers and, uh, my mom's side of the family also, uh, lived seven, uh, fifth generation San Antonio. And, um, but the ranch was started in the late 1800s uh, by uh, my great-great-grandfather, J., uh, James Alfred McFadden. Uh, still, uh, the ranch is still, uh, for the most part, in family hands uh, today. Um, I am a fifth generation, and my sons are now going to be the sixth generation. Uh, and... Uh, um, it's uh, on the Texas Gulf Coast, uh, near Victoria in Victoria County. Yep. Uh, and it's a uh, it's a wonderful place. Uh, we we partitioned the ranch like a lot of family ranches and family businesses. Uh, it happens. 
back in the late 80s. My dad was actually in charge of it. So we got the piece that nobody else wanted, um, and which I think is the best. And uh, about half of the our part of the ranch is, is covered in wetlands. We're at the confluence of the San Antonio and the Guadalupe Rivers. Uh, and we put a wetland reserve uh, program easement uh, on it that's through the USDA and an RCS. Uh, and it's one of the largest uh, private wetland reserves um, in the U.S. Oh, wow. uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's great. And right now, uh, because of the rains that we've been lucky uh, to get, uh, it's uh, it's all flooded and just uh, spent the past few weeks off and on down there with my two sons and my family. And, and uh, we've been fishing and, and duck hunting and I uh, went down there in December. I mean, there probably was at least a thousand, maybe fifteen hundred uh, pintails that got up out of the water, uh, off the water and teal and just tons of wildlife and bird life. Uh, we host, we're one of the ranches in the Guadalupe Delta that every year we, we host bird watchers for the Autobahn Christmas bird count. And the Guadalupe Delta bird count area is uh, consistently in the top five in number of species across North America for the Christmas bird counts. Wow. So uh, last year, I think we were 254 species. And, uh, I'm not sure about this year yet because we just had it and they haven't tallied up everything yet. So when you think about growing up in that family that's been so closely connected to the land, and I ask our mutual friend Jay Clayberg in our in our uh, mm-hmm. podcast asking the similar question, but you know, where what was that like growing up, just knowing that your family, for about as far back as as it can be traced, almost has just been so closely connected to the land to agriculture. Um, was was kind of conservation and responsible land stewardship just a, a part of conversation that you would have with your dad and the rest of your family, or was it just kind of an unspoken thing that you picked up along the way? Where did where did your kind of progressive land management outlook come from, and was it a direct result of of your dad, or just talk a little bit about that? Well, um, I'm lucky enough. Uh, to have been associated with the businesses, you know, friends and family friends and my father and, and, my, and my family, uh, a cousin of mine, Bob McCann, uh, is president of both Texas Southwestern Cattle Raisers Association and at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Uh, and he, he's one of the best producers uh, I know uh, personally. Um, so, it, yes, it was to answer your question, it, it was part of the conversation I grew up. Learning and knowing about it was lucky enough to um, be around it and some really, really great people that were in the business as well. Um, and growing up around it, you know, I, uh, that's why I like to get uh, my boys out there. It's just they come alive and you see that and you see what the outdoors can do for people and, and working and, and getting a work ethic. I mean, my my youngest son, five-year-old, last this past weekend when we went down, he was – he, he was actually he actually threw a, a temper tantrum because we weren't going to work the sheep and goat herds. Um, <laughs> he he was not happy with me. I said, "Son, we just don't need to work them right now." He was not happy at all about that. So, uh, and I've, I've worked my nine year old for well over eight hours uh, every now and then when we're working uh, out there, and they sit with the guys and they eat on the catwalk, you know, the tacos and or hamburgers with the guys and. Yes, kind of how I grew up, and I want them to grow up that way. It's just, it's been very special. My mom and my dad were uh, 
big proponents of, of conservation. My dad loved those wetlands, uh, so I grew up with that passion too, and watching those thrive um, with uh, with good management. And uh, so, yeah, I just all of the above, I guess. Um, it just it's in my blood, but I also loved it. And, and then going to ranch management uh, really, really got me dug in. I mean, that 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 got me focused. Uh, and I love college. Love getting my master's. Uh, for sure. Absolutely loved Woodbury, but, uh, the ranch management is in this area. It, it really sent me down that path and, uh, I've always had the international bug and travel bug and finding, uh, helping with the Institute, uh, satisfies all of those things. So <laughs> yeah, it's, it's wonderful. Well, you've, you've worked hard to, to get that lined up, you know, to be able to check all those boxes. Um, one more question about your, your, kind of history with that ranch so obviously you love it i mean you you wouldn't be able to work as hard as you do doing it if you didn't love it how much of a sense of responsibility do you have or even like worry that all right i'm the fifth generation i'm gonna be handing this to the you know passing this to the sixth generation and i've got to keep this together because there's so Mm -hmm. many pressures that make these big ranches unsustainable in ways and you know, have to split them up, have to sell pieces off. And that's just mm-hmm. no fault of anybody except it's just a, economics really. And so do you feel pressure about that? Just kind of with the, fam- yeah. the family history? Yes, definitely. I mean, I, I love that place and you know, I'd hate to see it split up or sold. Uh, you know, I tell my boys, I said, you know, I, I've told, uh, especially my oldest, you know, youngest and quite there yet to have these conversations, but you know, that I would love for them to be able to do something out on the ranch if that's what they want to do. Yeah. But um, in the end, just if they don't, uh, I, I do, and that's fine, and do do what they want and what makes them happy and they find their passion for. If it's not agriculture or livestock production. Um, but if that isn't going to, going to be, then I just want to instill upon them and make sure that it's either in the hands of someone else that does or, you know, that they see to it that it's managed correctly. Um, that much, I do want them to see, have a responsibility of a sense of responsibility to feel. And just, just like I do, um, because it, that, that is our responsibility. It's, that's our well, piece of land, piece of the little corner of the world. So, um, we do have a responsibility to do right by it. When you and your brother, kind of took charge of the ranch was it mm-hmm. about 10 years ago is that is that about right 10 11 years ago it was on and off uh a little bit and uh when i got out of ranch management i got to play cowboy for a few years and live out there and my wife and i lived in victoria it was great yeah. uh loved it uh and then some things happened uh you know that took me took me down some other roads for a mm-hmm. while and uh, my, my father passed away suddenly so i had to go uh, helped my mom with some things and for a couple years and just always wanted to get my master's. So uh, I ended up doing that because I love government and policy and trade policy and pertaining to agriculture because I, I just fascinated how that drives markets and prices and everything else. So um, and so then I, so I took a few years off uh, doing that, those things and then got back to Texas about six years ago. And we've been doing this uh, kind of now this current situation uh, ever since. My mom and my brother and I, um, and it, it works well just because my brother is interested in the wildlife, and uh, I'm more <laughs> I love the wildlife. Don't get me wrong, uh, but I'm a cow uh, cattleman at heart and yeah. love grasses, and 
and livestock uh, production. So, yeah, it it it, it somewhat of a symbiotic relationship. And what was the biggest challenge, or or not not challenge, but what was the biggest surprise? Like when you took over in this new structure with your mom and when your dad, after your, your dad had passed away, I mean, you had been watching it and watching him run it and, you know, obviously very, very aware of how a ranch runs, but all of a sudden when you are officially in charge, was there, is there <laughs> anything that sticks out in your mind is like, holy shit, I didn't, <laughs> I wasn't expecting yeah. it to be this hard. Does it, is there anything well, that it, sticks it, out? Yeah, a couple of things. It is. I mean, uh, how much goes on in the office. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, to your pre- previous questions, you know, how important it is to, you know, a state plan, uh, things like that. We have a few working oil and gas leases on the ranch. Uh, so involved a little bit in that uh, and making sure that they do right by the surface as well. And pipelines, like all of these things, like uh, what I found, I guess the biggest thing was that though it was fun, I think my lucky stars every day that my, my dad trained me uh, and taught me what he did, and though and, and while it was fun, I didn't really have a whole lot of time to uh, just uh, play cowboy anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I had to get a little bit more serious. <laughs> so, uh, which in some ways was a bummer, but I'm sure my knees are going to thank me for that later oh, yeah. on in life. Definitely. Um, <laughs> While we're talking about ranches, let's talk about the Texas Agricultural Land Trust. Because I, sure. when I was down in Austin recently, I, I spent some time with with some of those guys, and they were great. And I didn't even realize it, but that you were on the board until we were texting about it. And so, mm-hmm. can you just talk a little bit about that organization, what they do, and how you got involved? Sure. Um, Blair Fitzsimmons, the CEO of, of Texas Agricultural Land Trust, Talt, uh, asked me to be on the board several years ago. Um, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, what we do is we put conservation easements, uh, uh, if it's so desired, on, on ranches that are working agricultural lands, um, whether that's lumber, farming, uh, and or uh, ranching or all of the above. Uh, and I like and I'm fascinated by it and I enjoy it uh, for many, many reasons. And one reason to me is that I think that over the next couple, several decades um, in agriculture and and in the world as a whole, when we talk about climate change, I I think we and our policymakers are grappling with ways to, one, how do we put a true environmental cost on the food that we consume? Um, And then also, what the Texas Ag, uh, Agricultural Land Trust does and recognizes in a way is these conservation easements to me are a, a first step, a little step towards recognizing the public benefits provided by well-managed open land. Mm-hmm. Um, and monet- somehow I, I one of these, and like I said, through either carbon credits or something, but, you know, well-managed open land will you know they filter water um they help to mitigate flooding downriver and in urban areas we you know it's good for biodiversity uh sequestering carbon like all of these things benefit the public now that's not recognized monetarily uh yet but i think 
I think we're struggling to try to find out what, and there's not going to be any one perfect vehicle. I don't think that, you know, a carbon tax or carbon credits are going to be the silver bullet to just fix it. All of these things that we're talking about, they're not. And I think easements are one of those ways to recognize that because it helps with, uh, with, you know, uh, um, keeping lands together. And, uh, so, um, yeah, that's why, uh, I've enjoyed it as much as I have. And, uh, uh, stay doing as long as they let me i guess yeah, so here in colorado i do uh, i used to do a good bit of consulting work with the cattlemen's land trust the colorado cattlemen's agricultural land mm-hmm. trust here and they're they were founded as kind of an offshoot of the colorado cattlemen's association and it was a really good partnership because they got the stamp of approval from the cattlemen's association and then all of a sudden ranchers who may have been anti or not fully aware of conservation easements or not really fully understanding of them all of a sudden it had the endorsement of the the cattlemen's association so they they started to consider it and so over the last 20 years you've just seen easements become one of the many tools that ranchers use to keep their operations um, sustainable and so have Mm -hmm. you seen that in texas i mean has it have mm-hmm. have easements gone from kind of this outlier kind of crazy thing to uh, accepted part of agriculture now? Yes, definitely, and that has come with education and time, uh, and, and and it's increasing the comfort level. And as you know, there's you know there's several different types of easements, donated or purchased, uh, things like that. Um, and uh, Talt is uh, mostly vast majority is a, is a donated easement type. Yep. Uh, um, philosophy and um, well, and because of funding and various other reasons. But uh, when they first thought of it, Blair Fitzsimmons uh, told me uh, stories. Yeah, you know, that yes, I mean, our founding entities, the three kind of partners, are the Texas Farm Bureau, Texas Southwestern Cattle Raisers Association, and the Texas Wildlife Association. Um, if you would have gone in 15 years ago to any one of those organizations. 10 years ago, even maybe, uh, you would have been laughed out of the room, uh, with the concept of easements, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, government control or, you know, uh, you know, getting the cattle all off and a bunch of hippies that just want to put conservation easements <laughs> everywhere and, you know, uh, bring back the, the 1800s with the Buffalo. I mean, all that's gone, you know, and, and, uh, but over time, I mean, when my dad and my mom got the easement for the ranch and put it on the part of the ranch with the wetlands, you know, it was to the sheer horror of some of my family members, extended family members. <laughs> I mean, they they thought the FBI was going to be out there from time to time, looking, making sure we were doing everything correctly. Yeah. Um, and it just obviously, it, you know, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Um, if only we were and, that important here in the yeah, land conservation exactly. community. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, I, I think it's become much less divisive, much better understood, and has now seen as not for everybody by any stretch of imagination, but for some folks and some operations, it can be a very useful tool of uh, keeping lands together and keeping them in families and, um, and not, and, and trying to slow down some fragmentation and protecting some, you know, sensitive uh, places. Yeah, it, it really is a, a, a great tool. I mean, it's not, it's not a tool for, for everything. I mean, like any, mm-hmm. like any toolbox, I mean, you, you need a lot of different things, but that is, um, it's, it's been amazing here in Colorado, even just a little bit of time that I've been working in this relative to, to 
some other folks, I mean, to see how it has become accepted and can really, really help save family ranches. I mean, Mm -hmm. these things are going up for sale if they can't come up with some money and we're able to get them some money for to conserve it. It's really a win, win, win. Um, Pretty, pretty cool stuff. So you are a a partner with Explore Ranches and I've had Jay Clayberg and Allison Ryan on to talk about that. And so you know, obviously people are very aware of that, but can you just kind of give a, a brief update on what's going on with Explore Ranches and what you guys have coming up? Yes, uh, very exciting stuff. We are talking with several other different ranches to list on the website, so that is continuing to expand. I actually talked to a friend of mine uh, down in Panama, and if we can figure out how to do it, uh, you know, we might uh, might get a listing down there uh, nice. in the in the rainforest. And uh, then coming up, we're doing some events, uh, a health event Allison's putting on. And in April, we are doing a uh, culinary uh, weekend with a chef uh, from a restaurant here in Austin. Uh, it's, the restaurant's called I Due, and the chef is uh, Jesse uh, Griffith. Um, and we are going to cook uh, a few different meats that came off of the ranch during the day and walk around some and forage and pick plants and berries to add to the meal and uh i'm gonna make a weekend out of it and maybe drink a little wine there are eight spots available by the way cool. uh, and so we were selling those spots and then trying to market those spots people can come down and learn how to cook and enjoy the outdoors nice i'll put links to uh to all that on the website so i, I encourage people to check it out because awesome. i just really you know i've gotten a bunch of emails from people you know, our, our mutual friend, Trey Dempsey, who was a few years older older than us. Definitely. He yeah. uh, he sent me an email the other day with, with Explore Ranches and said, hey, did you know that Jess and Jay are up to the, are, are doing this? And I said, yeah, I definitely. I sent him the podcast with Jay, so I'll send him this one. But people are people are really buzzing about that business idea, and I'm, I'm excited to see how it continues to evolve. Yeah, we've got some super, super beautiful ranches so far. Uh, and uh, like I said, getting more, and, and we're, we're, uh, we're excited about it. One more kind of broad question about ranching. When when you look back, I mean, obviously your father is extremely influential. Are there any other mentors or kind of heroes you have that, and it could be people you know um, that, that you've known over the years, or maybe even people that you just read books or you know of, but people that you would consider very influential in kind of your your outlook on land stewardship? Yes, definitely. I mean, it, yes, first and foremost, obviously, uh, my mom and my dad uh, and my upbringing. Um, and because of the history at McFadden, uh, and my dad is a very gener- generous, kind-hearted person, and, and so is my mom. Well, uh, the town of McFadden, there's a small little town uh, on the ranch, and it, uh, up until the early 90s, had even a one-room schoolhouse, a working public school there. Um and we had a store and everything, and there's a lot of old-timers around. Well, they came – a few of them worked uh, for my dad and for us back in the day. And when I was growing up down at the ranch, uh, I mean, these guys were just – I mean, their stories of, of the Texas uh, Dust Bowl and, you know, 20s and 30s and, uh, you know, shucking oysters after school when they were kids for five cents a pint. And, you know, just a work ethic. I mean, just salt of the earth, just wonderful people. And – I got to live with the, the old uh, principal of the McFadden School District for a couple of summers down oh, there. Oh, wow. Um, and so he was very – his name was Jack Cohens. Uh, very influential in my life. And uh, and also, uh, you know, it, the well, the guy who I work with at the Institute, Jeff Guider, has been 
uh, very much a mentor uh, to me as well. And yeah, like I said, I've been I've been lucky enough to cross paths with some really good folks uh, so far. Speaking of crossing paths with good folks, we got to talk a bit about Woodbury and and brag mm-hmm. about what a what a wonderful place it is. Um, how I should know this, but I don't. How did you even find out about Woodbury? How did you end up at Woodbury? My family knew some folks that had been there, and there were some South Texas ranching families that have a history, uh, like Jay's family uh, at Woodbury, um, our friend Grady Cage. Yep. Uh, I did not know Jay uh, or Grady before we went, but got to know them, but their parents uh, knew my parents. So um, my parents, uh, like, like a lot of things, were very um, forward-thinking. And wanted the best for us and uh, in the end did not want uh, us to think of you know, South Texas as the center of the universe. I mean, granted, it's God, God's country and, and God lives there, but it's not the center of the universe. Um, so, uh, you know, 14 years old, I don't remember. I went and it wasn't like under duress and I ended up loving it. It was one of the best things that's ever happened in my life. Besides yeah. my wife and my kids, of course. Uh, yeah, we'll put that caveat in there when she listens to it. <laughs> no, I say, the, I say the exact same thing with the same caveat. Um, we, need, <laughs> we need to talk – I need to tell one quick story about the late, great uh, Grady Cage because I remember when I showed up at Woodbury, I didn't know – Grady is a buddy of ours that passed away of testicular cancer, and he was about the toughest dude ever. And I remember he was – it was one year we showed up, and Grady was walking around, and he had this cast on his hand, and he was just kind of a little, <laughs> little downtrodden. And everybody – and he was, like, playing football with this cast on his hand. And I heard somebody was like, Grady, what happened to your hand? And he said, I punched a cow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that dude was so tough. He was a different – he could fly helicopters and stuff when he was like 16 years old. No, I think even younger than that, he was flying with his dad. Uh, When we were at Woodbury, he was flying with his father. And that was – so we started at 14. So, uh, you know, he was already doing that and it had been. So he was a great pilot. Um, Uh, Great – yeah, just what a – what a badass all the way around, as tough as yeah, they come. I think the cow was about to run him over, and he punched it and hit a bone, and it broke his hand. And... <laughs> <laughs> I remember uh, that so sure. when you look back at Woodbury and that experience, what what, what would you say is kind of the, the most important lessons learned from that place? I mean, how do you think it, it directed your life if you hadn't have gone there? How, you know, how, how different is your life because of going there? Uh, it's definitely different how it would have turned out otherwise, uh, who in the world knows, um, maybe, uh, you know, I have no idea, but I think that one of the obvious ones, definitely the, uh, the honor code. Uh, I had already, you know, my parents, my family definitely instilled that. So it wasn't like a new concept to me, but Having that there was a, is a big part, and it's how I conduct my business. It's how I conduct my life, um, for sure. And I think we had a great class, and we had some really good – there were some great teachers there. And, I mean, spending four of your most formative years essentially living – I mean, you have – you know. I mean, you go to a, a, a reunion, and you haven't seen somebody for five years, and it's just pick up where you left off. You mm-hmm. had, you had, we had 90-some-odd brothers. Um and that that was the friendships. I mean, to you know, Glenn uh, Pritchett is 
uh, one of Jay's godfathers. I mean, just lasting, lasting, enduring friendships. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I think those things are probably what stuck with me the most, and, and the education as well, and um, which is great. The Woodbury and Britain program. Oh yeah, I forgot uh, Mr. you McKenzie. did that. Uh, it was, that was, I mean, that's probably one of the most uh, formative experiences uh, at Woodbury and, and in my life uh, when I did that. So yeah, I, I think um, you know, obviously, great education. But I think the you know, I've probably long since forgotten any of the books I read and all that kind of stuff. But I think just the act of having to work so hard to keep up, mm-hmm. I think that mm-hmm. that skill, um, and it is a skill, learning to work that hard. I mean, I think it that is probably one of the things that's carried over to me. I mean, obviously, honor system as well, but. It's just mm-hmm. it's a damn challenging place, and it is. Know, class on Saturday. When I tell people we had class on Saturday, <laughs> they're like, "What the hell?" <laughs> but I mean, it, it forces you. There, there is no break. You know, it's just it's just constant. And um, yeah, I think to be and it's to, constant and it's challenging. But like, I, I was I've been on the advisory board for a couple of years now and finished my tenure there. And, but uh, the new headmaster Byron Olsey, uh, we were talking one one of those sessions and. You know, yes, it's definitely challenging. It teaches you work ethic. But at the same time, what is unique about it is like what he said. He said, yes, you know, like Woodbury is a place where a boy can be a boy for another four years. Mm-hmm. And there's something to that. I mean, especially nowadays with everything we have at the palm of our hands and the phones and everything, the, you know, the, there is something so, so special and valuable about <clears throat> innocence. Yeah. And maintaining that. I agree. That was a big benefit of when we were there. And like we were saying at the beginning, I mean, there were tape players when we were there. It's not like these damn <laughs> smartphones and stuff. And so yeah. it's, um, I'd, I'd say it's more important now than ever. And luckily they've Definitely. been able to keep their values and, and keep the place running tight because that's, that's a whole nother, a whole different challenge to, to, to do that over a hundred plus years. Um, Man, we're we're at an hour, which is crazy. I feel like we just started. Holy moly! <laughs> I didn't even look at my watch yet. <laughs> but um, maybe if it's all right with you, we can run through some of these quick questions that I ask sure. uh, that I ask everybody, and then uh, I'll let you get back to managing the landscape of Texas. Um, so, <laughs> when you think about favorite books related to the American West. Are there any books that come to mind? Yeah, I mean, just finished one. It's a little bit older, but I like I like history uh, a lot. Um, there is a book in, from the mid fifties. It's called uh, "The Big Ranch Country." Mm-hmm. Uh, it's by J. W. Williams, and it's about the history and uh, the form, you know first couple of generations uh, of some of the larger Texas ranches: Wagner Ranch, uh, King Ranch. Uh, uh, Four sixes, uh, you know, ranches like that, and the ones out in West Texas uh, as well. And uh, just imagining how those people did it, uh, I will never ever. Uh, it, it was impossible to really, to really grasp it, um, what they endured, and it's I mean, so like, tough. It's just a different that, level. Yes, yes. I mean, my grandfather. My mom's father got back from World War II. He'd been shot down a couple of times over Europe and <clears throat> probably had PTSD. Uh, they just didn't know it back then. And so he told my grandmother, who was pretty much a city lady, uh, he just didn't want to see people for a year. So they went out down to South Texas, deep South Texas, with no electricity. 
and he rode a mule with the full leg cast on for the first few months because he had broken his leg in several places and he hunted off of his mule and worked cattle and uh and at night for entertainment um she would shine a flashlight and he would shoot rats at the foot of their bed um (laughs) in the house (laughs) how she put up with that i'll i'll never know but uh you know, and that was in the forties and I can't even imagine like turn of the century when they first started a lot of these ranches. Um, so yeah, it's amazing. Great book. Uh, it's not on the West. I'm reading the middle of right now. Um, it's called the far horizons. I uh, it's about, it's by Christopher Empson, super good. And he lived around the turn of the century, uh, for 30 years with the gauchos in Uruguay. Oh wow. Uh, and the grasslands out there. And uh, it's a fascinating book, so you might want to look that up too. Yeah, definitely. Those both those both sound really good. And I never heard of either. Exactly why I asked. Um, do you have any favorite documentaries or films of any type? Well, we've been big into Narcos lately, my wife and I. Have. Is that good? <laughs> Is it good? Um, yes. I mean, I, it's yes, it's very good. And because I, I just, my wife calls Latin America my second wife um, because. <laughs> Besides Texas, I don't know what it is. It's the attitude, the culture, all of the above. I I, I absolutely love it. So um, uh, anyway, we've been watching that. So in your in all the free time that you have, which sounds like it's probably about five minutes a week, what what do you do for fun when you're not when you're not working? Uh, well, right now it's pretty much with the boys, uh, and they uh, thankfully uh, maybe through my successful brainwashing, uh, love to fish <laughs> and love to hunt. And so I encourage that uh, as much as I possibly can. And, you know, the travel with the Institute, like I said, I got the travel bug from my mom's mother a long time ago and uh, really, really love to travel. My wife does, too. So uh, we do that for fun. And So with all the, the experiences you've had, Brazil, you know, traveling internationally, you know, growing up, growing up outdoors, is there, when you think back, is there a certain experience that comes to mind as being like the most powerful outdoor experience you've had? And so powerful could be scary. It could be funny. It could be just a memorable experience. Is there, is there anything that comes to mind is like, yeah, that was, that was about as intense as it gets. Um, yeah, yeah. Couple. One outdoor wise, uh, you don't know him cause you, you came to Woodbury, uh, sophomore year, correct? Yeah. That's that, right. Yes. Yep, yeah. Yep. Sophomore year. Um, so our senior, our freshman year prefect on freshman, the freshman dorm, Turner, was Ward Malloy's good friend, very good friend. Uh, oh, about seven, eight years ago, I went with him to Alaska. He drew a caribou uh, tag in, in the Kenai Peninsula. Oh, and wow. uh, we hiked, and he, he got one with a bow. Um, <clears throat> getting that meat out, uh, we forded streams. We hiked for 18 hours straight to get back <laughs> to camp with our first load. Holy um, cow. We ate like two or three MREs each, and the next day we did it again to get the rest of the meat out. Um, and uh, that, I mean, I was by the end of that, and when we were almost back to camp, I was, I was counting my steps. I've never been that physically. It was the most physically challenging thing I've ever done in my life. Uh, we get to this ledge, and you know, it was just lush and wet and green, and sun had gone down. It's like whatever it was, ten or eleven o'clock at night, and. Uh, I slide like romancing the tone style, you know, from the top and slide all the way back down with, you know, 50, 60 pounds of meat on my back. 
And uh, <laughs> um, I, I looked up at Ward and I said, Ward, you go ahead, man. I'm just going to take a nap. And he said, Jess, you have 50 pounds of bloody meat on your back. <laughs> you will be eaten if you take a nap right there. You have to come up this hill. And I said, oh, okay. So I made it. <laughs> it was so hard. Oh. And then the other one in like Ghana, as far as the Institute goes, I went to Ghana by myself. Jeff wasn't able to go on that one trip and went to Accra and traveled to a little town called Adidome in the Volta Delta region. And we were working with a group of cattle farmers there. And I was by myself and then it's a little town, but it was a nice little hotel and it was managed by this 12 year old girl and her 14 year old brother. Um, and it was clean and fun. But the mayor or the chief of the town heard I was there, so I had to go have lunch or dinner with him uh-huh. or lunch. I had lunch. And I'm pretty sure it was the water that they were washing the dishes in uh, and not the food because it was like fish head soup and it had been boiled. But yeah. <clears throat> So I ate and I couldn't insult the man. But, well, sure enough, I get sick. So for the next three days, I live on watermelons. They grow a lot of watermelon. And they only, there was one tiny, tiny little store, and the only thing they had there was saltine crackers. And I lived on watermelon and saltine crackers for three days, and I rode around on a dirt bike um, with two other fully grown African men uh, around these dirt trails to go see all of these, you know, their farms that they wanted me to see. Yeah. And I was just weak as a feather. I mean, oh, it was <laughs> so weak. And finally, I got to feeling better. And uh, spent most of the afternoon, and I was feeling better, and I was spent in bed, and I get up, and the little the boy who ran this hotel was named William, because that's my brother's name, and I said, William, I said, where, what can I get to eat? He said, well, there's no restaurant, and there's no store here, and I said, okay, and I look, I look across a dirt road, and I said, who owns those chickens over there? And he said, oh, that lady in that house over there, and I said, go, would you go ask her? How much she wants for a chicken? And this hotel had a kitchen. They just didn't have any food. It just had a small little kitchen. Yeah. So he came back and he said $5 a piece, which, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> and so I said, okay, William, here's 20 bucks. I said, you keep 10 for yourself and your sister. You buy two chickens. And I said, if you would, please, you and your sister kill the chickens, clean the chickens, and let's fry the living hell out of these chickens. <laughs> So I'm not going to get sick again, and you have a bag of rice. So we're going to have chicken and rice. And that was the best fried chicken I've ever had in my entire life. <laughs> That's great. That's awesome. That's really funny. Um, so if you had to pick – I bet I know the answer to this. But if you had to pick one location in the West that's your favorite, where would it be? Wow. Um I mean, to be honest with you, in the West, uh, it is really, really hard to beat uh, Allison Ryan's ranch. Oh, really? Um, it is absolutely one of the most gorgeous places I've ever been. That is an unbelievable-looking property. And I've never – I didn't know that Texas had landscapes like that. It's just I crazy. I love West Texas. It's gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. Very cool. Especially the Davis Mountains. Oh, yeah. Very cool. So this is a hard one, but if you had to pick – what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Ooh. Well, I'll tell you. And that's actually not that hard of a question. Uh, one of the most memorable and one of the best. I'm not sure if I can say it's the best. But we showed up 
at the Woodbury and Britain program. And uh, I had Woodbury had a manor house uh, outside of London in a little town called St. Neots. And Mr. McKenzie, uh, the teacher there, uh, took us in, sat us down right off the plane. We were dead tired and gave us a quiz. Um, we were just, it was junior year at Woodbury, so we were 16, 17 years old. And he gave us a quiz, you know, what's the population of the world? What's the difference between Shia and Sunni? What's the, who's the prime minister of the United Kingdom? And, you know, what's the population of the United States? And uh, we failed. All of us failed miserably yeah. uh, on a lot of those questions. And uh, he looked at us. He said, right, wrong, or indifferent, you as Americans, you as Woodbury students, you as, you know, whoever you are, you have – uh, civic responsibility, a social responsibility to be educated and know and be involved in the world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I've lived my life a lot like that. Um, and I, and I do, I, I do believe that. And I think the world would be a better place if a lot more people felt that social responsibility, um, to the rest of the world and, and population and, and also educate themselves so that we can have some of the conversations like you and I uh, were just talking about. Uh, and so that, that kind of, I mean, that really put me on a, on a path. And that was, that was a memorable moment in my life. That's great advice. I don't think I'd ever heard that story, but that's, uh, that's great advice, especially at that age. I mean, I think it's good advice for me to hear right now, but uh, <laughs> hearing that when you're yeah. 17, I mean, that's, that's really cool. Um, so how can people connect with you, learn more about TCU, learn more about Explore Ranches? What's the best way? I, I know you're not as active on social media, which is probably why you get so much <laughs> stuff done. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tried Facebook for about eight months and I gave it up years ago. Good. Um, but uh, they can or the Institute has a website. Um and it's on the TCU Ranch Management website. Uh, you can easily Google that and then look up what we do and who we are and how to contact us. Uh, the office number is there and my email and Jeff's email is there as well. Uh, Explore Ranches. Uh, we have all of us have our Explore Ranches uh, email uh, addresses. And then we have a website now that we're live. Um, and one of these days, one of these days, uh, my goal for uh, our ranch is to um, start selling some meat uh, straight off of the ranch. Oh, cool. And so one of these days, some people will be able to hopefully look up that website and, and order some lamb or goat or beef um, that was raised out there. So Yeah, well, keep me yeah. updated on that. Whenever that is ready, let me know, and I'll blast it out. But I'll have links to, to everything, TCU, school ranches, all that. But, man, I, this was really fun. And, you know, for as long as we've known each other, I didn't know a lot of this stuff that you told me. So I, I appreciate you taking the time. This is really cool. Anytime. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, If you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. 
The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.